I'll ask you this morning, church, if you would um, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, and we'll get there in a little bit. All right. Father, we, we look to you for everything. You are our strength. You are our, our guide, our shield. In everything, Lord, we look to you. God, we look to you this morning to help us. Help us to understand, Father. Help us by blessing us with wisdom in our hearts, our minds, that we could comprehend the message that you speak to us through your word. God, help me as I deliver your message. May it be your message, yours alone. May our ears be opened, our hearts be enlightened in everything that you bring this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Let me open up my Bible now. All right. I always have my, my text in my manuscript that I write, and then, but I like to have my, you know what I'm saying, I like to have the, the hard copy open too, just in case. All right. So, if you'll recall, before I got sick and was out for several weeks, um, um, I was preaching through a series called The Gospel. And so I want to, I had another sermon uh, prepared that I, I was going to preach and I didn't get to. Uh, so I, I do want to preach that sermon this morning and, and, and finish out our gospel series. By no means is the gospel finished, but this is a, just a short mini-series that, that I had written on it. And so this today, this morning, we have uh, the gospel in action. Now, what can we truly do with our lives in this world that has any bearing and weight on eternity but share the gospel? I want to say that again, or ask that question again. What can we do? What can we truly or possibly do with our lives that has any bearing, any weight in this world on eternity, but share the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is our hope. It is our hope in the Lord to, to lead another person to him. Amen? Our hope in God is always, every day should be, that we could lead another and we could help another, and we could share with another, that another would be changed. Do you know that the gospel tells us, that the Bible tells us, that, that there is rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. When one sinner turns to God, when one person turns to God, when they leave their former way of life behind and turn to him for salvation, that there is rejoicing in heaven. Now what happens on earth? Is the same kind of rejoicing present on earth? Now, I would, I would argue that, that it is in the church to some extent, but not nearly to the extent that it is going on in heaven. Because in, on earth, we have this weight of life. We have this weight of the flesh and this weight of sin that we are currently dealing with. In, in, in heaven, it's different than it is on earth right now. That's why we want it to be on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. So on earth, if there were the type of rejoicing that there was in heaven, then I argue, and I think you could make the argument from the scriptures, that if it was on earth as it is in heaven, and there was rejoicing on earth as it is in heaven when one sinner repents, then we would be ever more eager to share the gospel with people. But that's just not the truth, is it? I live in reality. I don't know about y'all. I live in reality. 
I don't, I don't let social media or the news cycles, I don't let politicians or governments of the world, I don't let these things inform me. I don't let them influence me and cause me to live a certain way. I live in reality. I really live with people. I have a family at home. Y'all know that? I got a wife and kids. My little Judah's got a cold now, so that's why they're not here. But I live in reality. And when we live in reality, it's much easier to come to grips with with reality and to grip to come to grips with the way that things really are. So I'm not fooled or foolish enough to think that it life on earth right now is as life is in heaven. I'm not foolish so foolish enough to think that life on earth right now is the way that it ought to be, the way that it should be. In fact, we can make an argument from thousands of years of writing in the Bible that life here on earth right now has gone astray. We do not share the gospel as we ought. Now, if you know anything about me or have been to any of the services that I've preached over the last six years plus here, how many times have I talked about sharing the gospel? Oh, every time? I think that's pretty accurate. So how important do you think it is to me? It is the sole purpose that I live. It's the only reason I'm here. If I were not able to share the gospel here, I'm going to tell you right now, I would not be here. I would be somewhere else where I could. Even Jesus, when he went back to his hometown, did not stay there long. Why not? Because they didn't believe. We need to be aware of where we are and where we live. We need to be aware of the reality that we exist in. And we also need to be aware of how eager we are, personally, to heed the word of God in the Bible, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with all nations. Now, there are people of many different nationalities within your own sphere of influence. You've been given a sphere of influence. Did you know that? Like God has given you a sphere of influence. There are people in your life, in other words, in your little circle, that you have influence over. And if God has given that to you, and likewise you are in someone else's sphere of influence, just so you know. So there are influencers all around you. But if God has given you this sphere of influence, what are you going to do with it? What will you decide to do with that sphere of influence today? Will you talk about him? Or are you just going to talk about somebody else? Because I'll tell you what, it's easy to talk about other people. That's easy, isn't it? It's much harder to guard our minds and hearts and our tongues from talking about others. And as people, I find it interesting, because I live in reality again, you know, that it's so much easier for people to talk about others. Gossip, man, how many times did you catch yourself gossiping this week? Just on one hand, count. I bet you could fill it up. It's so much easier because we, we, we don't mind talking about people. It's just Jesus that we mind talking about. 
Because gossip doesn't offend. But I'll tell you what Jesus does. I'm going to say that again. I, we do not mind in this world talking about others. So long as it's not Jesus. Because then we got a little bit of issue. And there are different reasons why we mind talking about him. It could be we don't feel we know enough about him. That shouldn't be. The disciples who traveled with him didn't even know a lot about him. In fact, they didn't even know he was Lord until he came back. Amen. We know he's now that he's Lord, at least, right? We know he's Lord. We've had years, literally years with this in our possession. Years. They walked with him for about three years before he was sent to the cross and died on their behalf so that they could have a chance to be saved for eternity if they would place their faith in him and really believe. Only three years. Yeah, but they, you can say, yeah, yeah, but they were walking with him daily, and they still didn't believe in him after the miracles he performed. And they still ran and fled and hid as he was being arrested and persecuted. They did not show their faces. In fact, Peter, the one closest to him, many could argue from the writing of the Bible, is the one who maybe committed the most egregious sin as Jesus was being persecuted because he denied knowing him three times. I don't know him. Well, no, he didn't. Not to the point that he would need to. Until a later time when he would give his life over in full. We've got a lot of time on our hands. How much reading do you do every week? I'm talking about like how much watching, how much reading do you do every week? Seriously. How much of that is spent in the word? I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a pretty small percentage, isn't it? This is who we are, for better or for worse. Did you know that Jesus, when we're married off to him, that when we take our vows in our, on our wedding, that we're going to be, we're going to honor our husband or, or wife, you know, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, and then, and then like, you know, we're going to be together in sickness and in health for better or for worse until death do us part. Well, do you know that that last part has nothing to do with Christ, but the rest of it, I would argue, is the way that Christ feels about us. When you're his, you're his. Amen? Can we all agree there? Once you're his, you're his. That's it. Once you're in, you're in. Because you're part of the family. And Jesus does not excommunicate family. There's no scripture that can, can support that. So Jesus is with you for better or for worse because he knows you will fall. He knows you will commit sin. But he's with you because he's with you and he's with you to pick you up. Amen? He's with you to continue to guide you by the hand. He's with you and he's there so that when you reach you out, you stretch your hand out and reach out for help, he's the one there with the hand outstretched to pull you up as he was with Peter when he was sinking into the water and as he will with you when you're sinking into the sand because you've fallen. He's with you there. And this is who we are, though, for better or for worse. I want you to be encouraged, though, this morning that God is with you. And he will continue to change you if you will let him. 
He will continue to draw you to himself if you will let him. Step by step, moment by moment, time after time, day after day, month, year after year, and for some of us, decade after decade, he will continue to draw us in. Will you let him? I've touched on in the gospel and preaching the gospel in this series um, that he has, that he gives us an incredible opportunity and entrusts us with the greatest message ever told. Let me tell you something, and this is, you know, maybe controversial to the world, but the Bible is the greatest story ever written. It ain't the Mandalorian or Star Wars, but those are good stories. I'm telling you, I'm hooked on that Mandalorian, man. It's a good, it's a good series. It's a good flick. I like it, you know. My wife even watches it with me now, so I'm like, woo, it's on, it's on, baby. You know what I'm saying? It's good. I like Star Wars. I like the Lord of the Rings. I like, you know, I like stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? We, because we, uh, my son hadn't watched the Lord of the Rings yet, so we were trying to start with, with that one. I like these, like, you know, epic, you know, fairy tale stories. You know, it's great. It's a great battle. It all draws on the battle of good and evil. And where does that come from, y'all? The battle between God and the, and the enemy. All these stories, you know, where there's a protagonist and an antagonist. You know, there's this great conflict. All these stories, they draw on the greatest story ever written, the greatest message ever told. But none of them, none of them even hold a candle to it. They pale in comparison. Just like everything in this life pales in comparison to God. But God entrusts us with the gospel, with this message. Now, if this is your first week uh, with us, or um, you maybe missed some of the weeks where I was preaching the gospel... We're at the end of this series, and I've been sharing the gospel in its simplest form and calling on the saints here and the saints everywhere to preach the message entrusted to uh, do the same thing that God calls us to do. Now, this gospel word means good news. You remember that? Good news. That's what the gospel means. It's, it's the good news about Jesus Christ and his work to save us from the penalty of sin because our sin, our sin deserves uh, retribution, it deserves a penalty. We have to pay that unless someone pays that penalty on our behalf. We learned that Jesus Christ, in fact, did pay that penalty. He made that payment to God as he died on the cross, a sacrifice for all the sin of all the people that would ever place their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. When we believe in him, then we take up, we take up that payment that he has paid and it is cloaked over us and we are covered in the righteousness of the blood of Jesus Christ forever so that we're saved forever and always seen as a son or a daughter of God. We are then adopted into the family of God. This is the gospel. God made a payment and we needed him to because we couldn't do it. You see, once sin takes place, then we need to offer payment again and again and again. Because listen, there was a problem that people had for a long time with sin, for thousands of years, in fact, with the law. Um, and the problem was that all the payments that had been made under the law, the law of God given through Moses, they were not enough to cover the person for all time. 
You remember back in the old covenant, there were payments that had to be made. This is what I'm talking about the law. I'm bringing in the law. This is where it comes from. In the law, a payment must be made for sin. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was a payment that was made for sin. There was an animal that was killed, and they were covered by the skins of that animal. Do you all remember that? That was the first sacrifice made for sin. Blood. It cost blood. It took death in order for sin to be paid for. So therefore, sin causes death. Sin doesn't only cause death of an animal that was used to cover the sins of the people of that time through the law, but sin also causes the death of the one who is the sinner. Sin causes our death. Did you know that, church? Sin means, because we do, that we deserve to die. And so this is why Christ made this payment. Because we couldn't do it. Because all the sacrifices that were ever ever offered by any high priest throughout the course of thousands of years of the law being instituted, all those sins, none of them could cover the person for all time. They were only temporary coverings. They weren't an eternal covering. So Christ, what he did when he came into this world, he was born to die. Remember I talked about the swaddling cloths? I talked about the swaddling cloths at the Christmas Eve service. Now, the swaddling cloths were incredible because they were used to wrap un, like a, a, a newborns, right? They were used, to, uh, shepherds used them to wrap newborn baby lambs until they were strong enough to get up and walk to their mother on their own and also to keep them without spot or blemish so that they wouldn't break any bones because without spot and blemish, that's the sacrifice that needed to be offered. Those were used as a sacrificial lamb. Now, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. This is why we call him that. Because he's the sacrificial lamb offered under the old covenant to pay for sin. Only Jesus Christ's payment for sin wouldn't only last for a period of time. In fact, Jesus Christ's payment uh, as the sacrificial lamb of God lasts for all time. This is what we needed. We didn't need a temporary covering. Listen, I don't want a temporary covering. I need an eternal covering because I'm going to need to be covered over and over and over and over again as I fall. And you need that too. And I'm so glad that you have that. I'm glad that you have that. Because listen, y'all, we need to be covered. Without this covering, we're naked before God and destined to die. But with God and this covering, we're clothed before him in his righteousness and destined for life. This is the payment for sin. The law of God given through Moses was not meant to be a way of salvation, but a mirror into which we can look and see our own inability to be reconciled to God because of the sin problem that we have within us. You look into the law, into the Old Covenant, into all the laws. How many of y'all have read through the laws of the Old Covenant and said, Oh, that's easy. I could do that. Huh? Anybody? No? no nobody really? Yeah, right? It's, it's hard. It's like, whoa, what? All that? I can't even remember all that. You know what I'm saying? I got problems remembering some of y'all's names. You know what I mean? Because I'm not good with names. I'm, I'm real bad with names. Don't take it personally. I'm real bad with names. I can't even remember names. I can't even remember some of the things that happened last week or last month. You know what I mean? And that's the truth, the truth for all of us. How can you remember all these things that you're supposed to do on a daily basis? We can't. We got a problem. We got a problem. But, man, it wasn't meant to be a way of salvation. It was meant to be a mirror that we could look into to see our own inability. That we couldn't keep it. So that we would look outside of ourselves for the answer. 
Because the answer did not lie inside of ourselves. You hear all this positive, you know, thinking, mumbo-jumbo. Look inside of yourself. Find the answers. You know what I'm saying? The answer is within you. You know? All this, it's not. It never was, never will be. Not unless who's in you is the Holy Spirit of God. You will never have an answer inside of you to save a problem that's inside of you. You cannot look to the inside to solve a problem that's inside. If you've got a problem inside, that means that there's no answer inside. You've got to look outside, and this is what God did. He provided the law as a mirror that we could look into to see, hey, listen, inside I'm all messed up, so I need help from somewhere else, from someone else. This is the gospel that God sent Jesus Christ to be that answer so that he would point to himself and he would say, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. If you want to get to God, you got to go through me. And by no other means will you ever get to the Father. There is only one name under heaven by which we can be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ, the name above all names. This is the gospel. That outward problem, or I'm sorry, sin isn't an outward problem. It's not an outward problem. That's the problem, though, with our society and our culture, isn't it? We want to fix the problems that are on the outside, the circumstances, the situations, the way that we look, right? The way that we look, the way that we feel, all these problems that are on the outside, this is what we want to fix. This is what we want to fix. Oh, I see this problem over here. I need to fix it. What about the problems inside of you? What about the way that you need to go to God to answer, to get the answer for the grief that you feel? What about going to God to get the answer for the pain that you're in, the turmoil that you're struggling, struggling through, because you can't seem to put down that sin that keeps on coming up and cropping up and popping up all the time. What about going to God to answer that which ails you from the inside? We needed an answer that was outside of us, not to fix the problems outside of us, but to pro- fix the problems inside of us, because we got an inward problem. And we need a fix that fixes us forever, not a temporary fix but one that fixes us forever. So this is what we've been discussing for the past, well, for those several weeks before I I was out. It is a returning to the foundation of our faith and the gospel, which Paul tells us in Romans 1.16, is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Okay, so I asked you earlier, how often do I, I talk about sharing the gospel? And you guys said, all the time, right? Every time we're together, I talk about sharing the gospel, the importance of it. Well, Why? Because since Paul says it's the power of salvation for everyone who believes, I want our church to operate in power. I want there to be power here. If the gospel is the power of salvation, and I want everybody to be saved, then that's why I talk about sharing the gospel, because the gospel has the power. Because I'm not going to pretend for one second, one micro millisecond, that I have the power I'm not going to be so foolish to think that you've got the power. In fact, I'm going to live in reality, y'all. How about you come with me? How about we all just live in a real world for a moment? 
How about we all live in the real moment and we all say, listen, we don't have the power for salvation, but God does, and it's in the gospel. So let's talk about the gospel. Let's share the gospel. Let's be about the gospel. Let's walk with the shoes of the gospel of peace. Do you tread on faulty ground, church? Do you think or feel, because of this gospel, or because of the life that you've lived, do you feel that you've fallen away from God so far that you cannot be restored? That's another reason or a hindrance that gets in the way of us going out on mission for God in our lives. It's feeling like we're treading on faulty ground because we've fallen so far away from God and we've committed these sins in our lives and God cannot possibly forgive us over and over. I want you to know that that is impossible so long as you have not committed the only unforgivable sin, which is the outright denial of Jesus Christ unto death or attributing the works of God to the devil, which the Bible calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Unless you've committed that sin, you got hope. Unless somebody in your life has committed those sins, they have hope. And that's why we share, we continue to share if you still have life, you still have a chance for repentance and restoration. You see, it's in experiencing the, the experiencing of forgiveness that we come closer to God. You remember the Bible tells us that she was forgiven much, so she loved much, right? I need you to be aware this morning of how much you've been forgiven for. If you've asked God to forgive you of your sins, if you've called in the name of Jesus then he's done that. He's forgiven you. He's heard your call. He's heard your cries, your pleas for help. He has been the answer the whole time. And because of how much you've been forgiven, this should produce in you a love that is as big as the forgiveness that you've been given. You should have the love of God within you, in other words. If the forgiveness of God is in you, then the love of God must also be there. Amen? You've not been so bad that Jesus won't love you, y'all. At his death in the flesh, he spoke to his father, our father, and asked him to forgive all those who had done these um, like incredibly bad things to him and put him to death, tortured him. He asked Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And oh, how right he was that they knew not. I would even argue many cared not what they did. We walk so ignorantly sometimes of the deep truths of God and Jesus, and we cannot see clearly. We become calloused and blinded by the world, but there is a way out of all of that. And his name is Jesus. His name is the name above all names before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Did you know even those people who do not place their faith in him, once they die, will go to see him. They will be judged and they will declare that he is Lord. But it's going to be too late. This is what we don't want. What we do want is we want to help those people so that they're saved from that moment. They're saved from it being too late. 
that they're saved here in this life because once this life is over, there's no chance. We ain't universalists here. The universalists will tell you that, oh, once you get to God, if you confess then, if you, that he's going to save everybody. That ain't true. You cannot find that in the scriptures. In fact, you would have to look deep within yourself to find the reason for that. That same self that's the problem and needs an answer for sin. When you look to incomplete places that don't have all of the information, when you look to the problem to find the answer, you will find problematic answers. You hear me? You know what I'm saying? When you look to the problem to find the answers, you will find problematic answers. The answers only come from God for eternal life. They cannot possibly come from man. When we are forgiven much, we also worship much. Do people forget from where they've come? Have we forgotten what Jesus has done? It is the forgiveness realized that leads us into greater and more intimate worship, greater and more intimate praise of God. Think about the worship, like think about the way that you experience like uh, the worship of God. And so what we do here this, in, in, on Sunday mornings is we worship God and we worship him in different ways. We worship him through prayer. We worship him through music, and we worship him uh, through the preaching of the word, and we also worship him through the reading of the word, and we also worship him through the listening of the preached word of God. This is all worship. And also we worship him through fellowship. We worship him through being on mission for God. We worship him through having a missional heart as we hear the gospel and the message of God preached. That way, when we go out from here, we would go out with purpose. We don't just sit in here to feel good and to do, we do this with a purpose. There's a reason why we're here, amen? And the reason why we're here is because we need some answers, we need some healing, and we need purpose, and we need drive, we need ambition, we need mission. We need reason, don't we, in our lives? How many times have you sat and thought about your life and said, why am I even here? What am I doing here? What is this life even for? We need purpose, and the gospel gives us that. The Bible teaches us that. It gives us purpose. It shows us why we exist and why we're here. We are literally here in existence on this planet. You are, all of us are, for the glory of God. For His glory. That is why we exist. So if you exist for the glory of God, when you do things that are unglorifying to Him, you are literally working against your own reason for existence. Is that what we want? That's not what we want, right? We want to work with and for the reason for our existence. We want to work for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul knows all of this. He was a man in direct relationship with Jesus. He was also a man whom we've been acquainted in the writings of the New Testament. Remember I spoke a few weeks ago uh, uh, the, the message I preached right before I got sick I, I preached about um, the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus when he was blinded by a light shining brighter than the sun he was, right? he was knocked to the ground he had scales over his eyes and when he said who are you Lord because he was wondering who has done this to me and who's talking to me right he says I am Jesus the one whom you're persecuting 
Whoa. So, John, uh, so I'm sorry, uh, Paul was on his way to persecute more Christians. He was literally a murderer. He was doing it because he was following a religion that was leading him to do these types of things. Right? He was in Judaism, steeped in it. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had the best teaching. And even the best teaching in the Pharisaical order led him to want to persecute Christians. They called them followers of the way, right? That's what they called the Christians back then, followers of the way. They weren't called Christians yet. Well, Paul knew well what it was like to live a, a lowly life. He took part in these murders. Uh, uh, he was uh, uh, present uh, at the stoning of the Apostle Stephen. But then he was changed by that light. And this is the same light that Jesus told us in John 8, 12... That is the light of the world. He says that he is the light of the world and that whoever follows him will never walk in darkness. Did you know that if you follow Jesus Christ, you will never walk in darkness? That the darkness of eternity will never befall you? That you will always have hope, in other words. There will always be light. There will always be life. There will always be a way. You will always find a way if you turn to God. This is the life of eternity and the light of eternity and it's because of this truth that Paul is able not only to become a follower of Jesus but then lead others to a saving knowledge of Jesus in fact he loves them so much that he actually gives his life consistently until the day that the Lord finally allows Paul to lose his head at the hands of the Roman Emperor Nero the Lord allowed it and called Paul home and Paul consistently offered his life until that day in service to God for the building of his kingdom and although he had been led astray his whole life up until that moment when Jesus let him know that he'd been claimed for the kingdom, Paul did not hate his fellow Jewish brethren, did he? He didn't say, well, I hate him now. He didn't say, I was a Jew, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and now I hate all those people because I'm a Christian. He didn't say that, did he? In fact, he lived his life a completely different way, and this is what we're going to touch on today. He didn't hold it against them. And he had to rely on God for this help. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. So my leading today from God is to bring out just how the heart of our Lord works in those who ultimately choose him with their life. This is the gospel in action. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now here in the first verse, Paul's qualifying his statement right away by telling us that he isn't lying, but he's telling the truth. Remember Jesus does things like this? As we hear him speak, as the, the, the words of Jesus Christ are recorded in the Gospels. How does Jesus say it? Truly, truly. Or he says, truly, truly, I say to you, 
truly, truly, or verily, verily in some translations. He's like, seriously, seriously, listen, listen. This is the truth here, all right? He's, he's calling attention. He's qualifying the statement by saying, listen, what I'm about to tell you, you need to listen to because it's the truth. So qualify, he's qualifying his statement, Paul is. He's saying that um, he's setting us up for something that he wants us to know. And, and, and what, what's coming next is heavy. And Paul doesn't want us to miss it. In the context of the gospel and right living, Paul talks about his conscience-bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Also, that's big words. Hey, can you pop that back up and keep Romans 9, uh, verse 1, the first, the first verse there up? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus saying again, truly, truly, okay? Because what he's about to say, it's super heavy. It's super heavy. He doesn't want us to miss it. The term translated here, bearing witness, because it says my, my conscience bears me witness. Now that, that term translated there, it only appears two other times in the New Testament. And all three occurrences are in Paul's letters to the Roman, Paul's letter to the Romans. And in all three, Paul's talking about his conscience bearing witness with or in the Holy Spirit. So my conscience bears me witness with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, he's also talking about the law of God written on our hearts and the Holy Spirit giving assurance of the adoption into the family of God. Now, these are all confirmed in Paul by not only the scripture, but by the testimony of his conscience with the Holy Spirit in our spirit. So the testimony that we have in our conscience in the Holy Spirit. So our conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit is a huge thing. Because your conscience, what's your conscience? Is that what drives you? Is that what lets you know what's right and what's wrong? When your conscience, what do, you, what do we say? Oh, it's weighing on my conscience. When you do something wrong, what does it weigh on? Your conscience. It's weighing on my conscience. This has been weighing on my conscience. When somebody asks you a question and you're trying to find the answer, it's weighing on your conscience. Well, he's saying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is true. I don't want you to lose this here. It's true. Everything that I'm about to tell you, I feel deeply. This is weighty. This is heavy. Listen up because I need you to know something here. This is huge stuff, y'all. What it means is that every believer, in every believer, our conscience works in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit speaks to and works with our conscience. Now, if your conscience is weighty and heavy on you and causes you to do things in a certain way, to act in a certain way, to say things, to take action... If your conscience is going to do that and the spirit works in conjunction with your conscience, in other words, works with your conscience, then that means that you have literally God working with you on your behalf to lead you to do the right thing. So do we have an excuse for doing the wrong thing then? Absolutely not. Because our conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. He works in conjunction with us. It's telling us that our conscience has the innate ability to gauge the heart of God in the Holy Spirit to know the truth. And granted, it's got to be done in Christ and in direct correlation to the Holy Scriptures. I want to read this for you just for some, some more context and back up. 1 Corinthians 2, 10-13, listen to this. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So do you think that you could possibly know what God wants? If you've given your life to Jesus Christ 
and you have the Spirit of God in you, then do you know or do you think you can know what God wants? Yes. Without the Spirit, can you know what God wants? No. With the Spirit, again, can you know what God wants? Yes. Okay, listen, let's go on. For who knows a person's thought ex- thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? Aren't you glad the spirit of the person next to you doesn't know your own thoughts? Because sometimes those thoughts are not so good about that person. You know what I'm saying? Who knows a person's thoughts but the spirit of that person? In other words, you, only you know what you're thinking. Only you know what you're thinking. So what this is also telling us is the Holy Spirit is God himself because the Holy Spirit's the only one who knows what God's thinking. So the Spirit of God is God, just like our spirit is us. You flowing with me? All right. I'm not losing you, right? This is weighty, and this is, I know that Sunday mornings, I know, just be evangelistic on Sunday morning. Don't teach. Well, I'm going to teach tonight, or this morning. All right. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world... But the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So in other words, these thoughts of God, these truths of God can then be communicated. So not only can you tell what God's thinking or what he wants, or what the truth is because of the spirit in you, but then you can also communicate that truth. You can say it, you can speak it, and you can walk in it. This is what God has given you. Think about this, y'all. Think about your former way of life and the way that you lived. Think about the way that it was so hard for you not to fall into sin, and think about how now you actually have ability in God to walk in the truth. Think about how different that is of a life. That's, oh, it's, it's amazing. Okay. So this is why Paul's saying that his conscience bears him witness in the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. Uh, that's what he's saying. And it's why he's saying what he's saying. And it's why he's pointing to the truth here. Because the truth is revealed by God in the believer. Because the Holy Spirit makes it available to be known. What God wants, again, church, can be known by everyone who believes. What God wants. Now I want you to know that in every believer... This same ability exists. The testimony of our conscience or our conscience bearing witness means that our conscience working with the Holy Spirit is our morality meter. You need a morality meter in this life, don't you? You need to be able to tell what's right and what's wrong, don't you? Right? I know I need it. We all need this. We can use this to tell the true from the false, right from wrong. And we can also speak truth, as Paul does here, in clear conscience, as he knows that what he's saying is the truth. And we should be able to speak with clear conscience what the truth is in situations, because people need the truth, so long as our conscience is guided and held to the test of Scripture. Now, I want to tell you, not everything that everybody says, oh, I'm saying this in the Spirit, I'm speaking in the Spirit, oh, God's telling me this. Not everything, no, let's not go there. You know what I'm saying? Some people have told me that God told them some things that were just, I'm like, God did not tell you that. God didn't. They're not, not our God. The, God. the God of this Bible? He ain't telling you that. Man, come on. You know what I'm saying? That, that, that's not what that means. Because sometimes people will listen to themselves rather than listening to the Spirit. Because sometimes 
people will listen to themselves because what they're saying to themselves and what they're hearing from themselves just sounds so much better to themselves than what God is actually saying. And you'll see that it flies in the face of this. Like people who think that they, they can be ordained and, and, and preach the gospel of God in a church or, or hold a position of authority whom God says, absolutely, you cannot do that. You know what I'm saying? God ordains his church or he ordains the life of the church in a certain way. There's a certain structure and there's a certain structure in life and has gone from the beginning until now and will keep on going after we're dead until the church is wrapped up in glory with Jesus Christ in the new, in, in the, the new Jerusalem and the new holy city. All right? People... Sometimes it just sounds better. God, what, I'm feeling this though. God, I feel like God's telling me, hold on a second. What do you mean you feel like God's telling you? Where are those feelings coming from? Because all of our feelings tend to lead us astray. Can we test it by the authority of the scripture? Will it fall in line with what God has already said? Because God does not contradict himself. So he will not tell you one thing and tell all of the rest of us another thing. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So what's, him, what's his conscience? Okay, that, I know that's a lot about just the conscience-bearing witness. But what's this conscience-bearing witness about? Okay, so he says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. This is heavy. So when Paul says that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish, he's not exaggerating. Remember, his conscience bears him witness in the Holy Spirit. If he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish, this is where he's getting to. It's serious. He's just told us this. The words translating unceasing anguish are like a constant consuming grief. Constant consuming grief. A grief that consumes a man, a grief that consumes a woman and drives them, causes them to live a certain way. Paul loves his family, his Jewish brethren. He doesn't want any of them to go to their graves without knowing about the saving power of Jesus Christ. Think about if Paul is saying this about the Jewish people, how we should be saying this about everybody in our lives. Uh, bring up Romans 9.3. Paul loves his family. He loves them to no end. The fact that they don't know Jesus and they are the chosen people of God, or as Jesus said in John 4, the people through whom salvation comes, right? He tells the, women, the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, what is he? He says, salvation is from the Jews. So if Jesus says that, and then we know that the Jewish people do not accept Jesus Christ for the large, by a large majority, some of them do, like Paul, that we know there's something going on. And there's something in Paul's heart that is just burning. And it burns for them. The fact that they, they don't know Jesus consumes Paul with grief. A consuming grief. They were given the promise and many of them missed it. They grumbled and complained their way through the wilderness with Moses. Only for many of them to die there without reaching the promised land. You remember that? You know that grumbling and complaining causes death, leads to death? That's what, that's what that does. That's what happened in the wilderness. We see it in Scripture, yet yeah, we take part in it. Come on. 
How many things have you grumbled and complained about in your life this week? Okay? I hope to God nothing, uh, no, none of that was about God. I understand grumbling and complaining at the supermarket. I understand grumbling and complaining in traffic. I understand it. I'm not saying it's right, but I understand it. What that does is it reveals the root of bitterness, and that leads to death. That's not what we want as a church. We want what leads to life. What's pretty cool is that the word translated grief or anguish carries with it the idea of sinking into or being plunged into grief. Being plunged into grief. Sinking into grief. Like if grief was a vast ocean and you were sinking in it. This is how this is, this is, how this is written, y'all. This is the language, the colorful language that God gives us. Now, the, the root of that word is used in the New Testament to, to describe the setting of the sun. <laughs> Listen to this. The way that the sun was set in its place, the setting of it, is the way that grief feels. It's heavy and it's seemingly unmovable or immovable. Can you move the sun? Can you move the sun? Anybody here? The sun, the star. Can you move it? Can you do anything about it? Can you bring it closer to you or move it farther away? Can you hide from it except to go into a dark room? You cannot. This is the way that the root of that word seems. In other words, this grief was set in its place and it was immovable. He could not escape it. Mm. The grief that Paul feels seems as though it will not be undone except to be undone by God himself because God is the only one who can move the sun. I want you to know that even if your grief seems like the setting of the sun, like it's set in its place, like it's immovable, like you're sinking in, into it as though you're sinking into a vast ocean of it, that God can remedy those things quickly. And God can move the sun. He was the one that made the sun. He can surely remove your grief. He can surely help you to understand it. He can surely quench it. He can surely provide a way through it. And he can surely move you closer through that grief to himself. Again, verse 3, Romans 9, 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Okay, now that's the really heavy part. How many of you in here would say or pray this prayer and say these words and live life in this way? Now to be sure, this is the life of Paul the believer and he has no more access to God than you do. Do you know that? That Paul has no more access to God than you. No more. He is like you. You are like him. We are all the same in this, in this life, in this church, around the world. The Holy Spirit is the same now and forever. He doesn't have special access. He doesn't have secret knowledge that the rest of us don't have. Now to put this into perspective, the word for accursed, he says, I could wish... I could wish myself were accursed, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. The word accursed is the word anathema. And it's, 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 it's uh, which means it's, uh, 
It is to devote to destruction in eternal hell. Now, let's read this. I could wish that I myself were devoted to destruction in eternal hell and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, do you think that this verse has weight? Do you think it means something? Do you think this gospel that's preached means something? Do you think that people mean something to Paul? Even those same people who were leading him astray, who were following after their own traditions rather than honoring the commandments of God. It's incredible that Paul would exhibit so much love for them, or so much love for anybody, really. Not even just for them, but for anybody. Can you say that about your wife? If she does not know Jesus, or your husband, if he does not know Jesus, or your son, if they don't know, your daughter, your cousin, your nephew, your uncle, your neighbor. Some of these Jews, Paul didn't even know by name or face, had never even met. But he was saying, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of them. If they could be saved and I could go to hell, I would do it so that they could be saved. How many of us live our lives in this way? How many of you have even ever had a thought like it? Wow. I also want you to know that what Paul's saying here is impossible. It's a little bit of his flesh getting a hold of him. Because there remains only one sacrifice for sin, and his name is Jesus Christ. Paul cannot sacrifice himself for sin. There remains only one substitute, and his name is Jesus. But this exhibits the heart of the apostle and should be a call to all believers that we need to love on a level that is foreign to the world and even perhaps at this point in our lives foreign to us. This is how important the gospel is, y'all. We need to love on this level. This is the gospel in action. And I want to call attention to God working in the life of the believer Paul. God works through Paul in the person of the Holy Spirit to bear witness that the truth of Paul's heart is that he would see himself banished to eternal hell so that he could see his fellow kinsmen saved by Jesus. And this is how much he wants it for them. This is how good it is to Paul, this gospel. This is how valuable salvation in Jesus' name is to Paul. This is the same Holy Spirit working in you, church. I encourage you to live your life out in this dark world by loving those who have never loved you back. What good is it only to love those who love you back? I want to read Matthew 5 to you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. 
and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He does. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now does that passage mean anything to you? I pray it does. This is the love of God. This is the heart of God. Now Paul would of course not take credit. He would not credit this to his own account. He would credit this to God's account. He would call on the glory of God in him to do that which would change him into the man that he is. And I implore you, I beg you, I plead with you this morning to call on the power and the glory of God to reveal in you the man or the woman that God is calling you to be. And then for you to be that man, to be that woman. Follow God in obedience to be like him. I want to read a quote from another man who would do the same thing. This is St. Augustine of Hippo in his Confessions. And we're going to pull that up on the screen for you. Thus, my son, take the books of my confessions and use them as a good man should. Not superficially, but as a Christian in Christian charity. Here, see me as I am and do not praise me for more than I am. Here, believe nothing else about me than my own testimony. Here, observe what I have been in myself and through myself. And if something in me pleases you, here, praise Him with me. Him whom I deserve to be praised. Him whom I desire to be praised on my account and not myself. For it is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. Indeed, we were ourselves quite lost, but he who made us remade us. As then you find me in these pages, pray for me that I shall not fail, but that I may go on to be perfected. Pray for me, my son, pray for me. He said to take him for what his testimony said about him and not to praise him for more than who he was. And then to praise God for that. He desired not that we make much of him, St. Augustine or Paul. His faith sang from the mountaintops. It sang through the white noise of life. That would perhaps put us to sleep but cause distractions while we are awake. I listen to white noise when I go to sleep. Anybody else do that? I listen to like ocean sounds or like thunder storms or rain or like forest sounds as long as it doesn't have like a bird chirping or something because then I can't go to sleep. You know what I'm saying? Tweet, tweet, tweet. I'm like, get out of here. I'm going to pick another one. 
you know. As long as there's no animals in the background, I can usually go to sleep. But as soon as I wake up, I turn it off quick because it confuses me. It distracts me. I don't want to listen to it. Like, I don't walk around with white noise going on my phone in my pocket all day. So all day I'm not listening to like a thunderstorm while I'm living life. Well, this faith that Paul calls us to in Jesus, this faith that Augustine calls us to in Jesus, it cuts through the white noise of life. You see, he had allowed the word of God to perfect him. So with this, I want to encourage you to come back to the faith and back to the foundation of our faith and fall in love with Jesus all over again through the gospel of your salvation. What will you do with your life, church? What will you do with your life? Will you work and will you live for the greater good of the glory of God? Or will you get caught up in the white noise and be lulled to sleep and confused while you're awake? Will you praise God for his goodness or call attention to yourself for every good thing that you do? Will you live your life so that others, you consider them more significant than yourselves as the, the, the Bible teaches us so that we would work and live and share the gospel of grace so that others could come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ or will we be lulled to sleep by the white noise of this world? What will you do with your life I'm asking you and imploring you this morning, church, to live out the gospel in action. Allow it to change you and make you new. It is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. God, you are so good to us. God, you are so good to us. Lord, you have such serious words for us in your scripture. And God, we are called to be a serious people, serious about you. And I want you also, Lord, to give us joy in these moments. To give us a joy that, that is inexplicable, that is undescribable, unexplainable. God, help us to love you. Help us to love you, Lord, more. Help us to be obedient to you in word and in action. Help us and change us, oh God. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.